This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. I'm Robbie Greenfield and alongside me is Chris McCarty and Sona Rapani. Working our way through the years, we'll highlight world events, cultural achievements and the stories that have been forgotten. To give you a little overview of the 1990s so far, if you've missed any episodes, we've taken a, a sweeping look at the 80s. We've taken a look back through the 1990s. It was actually, you know what, a really good decade. Uh, 90s. I, I remember it, things about it that you sort of forget over time and you just get little reminders of, of what we witnessed in, in terms of sport. The 95 Rugby World Cup, Euro 96, Michael Johnson's sprint double at the Olympics in 96, Shane Warne's ball of the century, all these little things mm. in sport that you've forgotten about. And then some groundbreaking films were, were released in the decade, loads of different musical genres as well. The dot-com boom, Amazon and eBay were launched, Sony PlayStation. Right, let's zoom in now on 1997. And here we are in 2021. Let's face it, I know it panics, Chris. We are rate- waiting with the rise of AI for the machines to take over, aren't Correct. we? Correct. Yes, I do feel that. We're just waiting for the day when that happens. Well, the roots of this sort of Terminator-esque prospect actually appear to be in 1997 because on May the 11th of that year... Grand chess master Gary Kasparov making his second appearance on the time yes. capsule. Love it. He resigned after 19 moves in a game against Deep Blue, a chess-playing computer developed by scientists at IBM. It was the first time a human chess player had ever lost to a computer. It was the sixth and final game of their match, which Kasparov lost two games to one with three draws. It actually, the idea that you could even beat a computer is beyond me because a computer could run through every single possible move, right? Presumably. Well, I think this was when computers were a little bit behind the eight ball. This was 1997, (laughs) son. I think that's the point. He wouldn't stand a chance now. He'd lose in three moves now. Yeah. Well, he probably wouldn't because this is the turning of the tide, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I I think this was just, you know, it was all a bit of a shock. Gary Kasparov, incidentally, he was known for his unpredictable style of play. Um, and he'd <laughs> actually he'd, he'd beaten Deep Blue the year before in 1996. <laughs> but he actually switched up his strategy and played a more conservative approach, a more wait-and-see kind of cat-and-mouse approach with the computer. The computer actually managed to figure this out. And he actually said in the aftermath that this is one of the reasons why he was defeated. I love wow. the fact we've just given a tactical breakdown over a chess player. <laughs> Only on our script. Time Capsule does manage to feature a lot of chess. Yeah, I like it, Rob. So Deep Blue took down Gary Kasparov. Yes. Now, this was also the year where an unfortunate headline led to a backlash. On the front cover of the Thomas Guide Road Atlas, released that year, readers were informed that 666 new streets had been added in Orange County, California, causing an outcry that the atlas must be the work of the devil. The LA Times reported that the response was so severe that the issue had to be recalled and republished with the proclamation that 665 new streets had been identified, (laughs) which actually wasn't true. But it was just to ward off. Yeah, people were really angry that 666 (laughs) appeared on the cover of this atlas from 1997. Um, DVD players debuted, but not everyone was on board with it. Um... Basically, what happened was Hollywood shunned the DVD player. So early adopters of the technology, which, you know, was $500 worth of kit, had to make do with films like Space Jam and a handful of other titles. Hey, who's knocking Space Jam? Well, you know, 
I did see. It's all good for a rainy day, yeah. but you, you'd, you'd want a bit more variety than yeah. that, wouldn't you? I mean, if you're spending five hundred dollars, I suppose. I did see the new uh, trailer for the new reboot of yeah, Space Jam, the LeBron one. The LeBron one. I mean, I thought Michael was pretty wood in all those years back, but oof, LeBron, really, from the trailer. Oh, yo, yo, LeBron, stick to playing basketball, my friend. But of course, it's for a new generation and all. And given the fact that we one is of the age, I probably will take her to sure. see Space Jam featuring Oscar-winning <laughs> LeBron it's for the, Let's pretend it's for the wee one. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> She's a bit too young for it, in fairness. Uh, this is the year that the Harry Potter series was came it? to life. Um, published on June the 26th, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone launched oh, wow. J.K. Rowling into the stratosphere and initially only 500 hardback copies were released, 300 of which were distributed to libraries. By 2001... 5 million hardback and 6.6 million paperback copies had been sold. Wow. Wow. I remember still coming back from like freshman year of university because she dropped them every summer. Yeah. And you just wait in line at the bookstore. Be you so don't excited. You drop a book. Yeah. Yeah. She totally you don't she, drop JK a book. JK Rowling dropped you publish books. a no, book. You she do not drop she it. She dropped them. That Let's did. be honest. Those releases of those books <laughs> made so, headlines. Well, listen, when they were anticipated enough that people are waiting at the bookstore the night before, mm. that's a drop. I agree. Right? That whole phenomenon completely passed me by. I've never read a Harry Potter. I've read the first two. My missus reads them every six months. I mean, she could quote you lines from every book. She's that big of a fan. And she's kept, she got some early editions, so they are kept Ooh. pristine condition. Ready for when Naya can read. Now, speaking of phenomenons in that year, I, I want to play this little clip because these lovable characters oh, made no. their television debut. Take a listen. Dinky Winky. Dinky Winky. Dipsy. La la. La la. Ho. Ho. Tilly Tubbies. Now, given the fact Sonal's just scrunched up her face, I can only assume that these fellas or things get beyond the UK. I've heard, you know, I've heard of the Teletubbies. I feel fortunate, having listened to that just now, that I've never actually watched any of it. Yeah, this was the first uh, little bow of Tinky Winky, Dipsy, Lala and Poe. It became cold viewing. Now, a lot of behavioural experts did question the fact that gibberish language would actually impair the development of young viewers, but this didn't seem to hold the Teletubbies back. They were... They were rampant for yeah. a few years. <laughs> Wait, so the whole show was just them speaking in gibberish? Absolutely, gibberish. I mean, they couldn't even say hello. <laughs> they said A-O in, yeah, in an attempt to say hello. I mean, I personally think it, it, it was too much. Right then, Robert, the movies, what's the standout one? Well, the biggest one, I think we all know the answer to that, James Cameron directed it. The standout one for me, there's quite a couple of contenders, actually, featuring Al Pacino, Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe. Lots of interesting movies to talk about, Interesting. Actually. It is, and there were a lot of good ones released in 1997. The biggest of the year, by an absolute country mile, was this one. And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you? Well, yes, ma'am, I do. I mean, got everything I need right here with me. Got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge, and now here I am on the grandest ship in the world and with you fine people. <laughs> I'll take some more. What a film. Yeah, it is actually, as I was looking, because to, to look at just finding a little clip there, it had so many amazing scenes. Mm. It, it actually is a much better film than I think oh, we all times. give it credit for. We, we see it as a bit soppy and a bit you know, indulgent. 
and kind of but actually the the plot and the kind of all the different things that happened in it i watched it in french so <laughs> i have a very distinct memory of it i love the fact you were in france on i was on a french exchange and they took me to see titanic <laughs> three-hour movie yeah oh, it was just unbelievable yeah. That was one of the movies that we were just talking about. How it's one of those movies you remember where you remember yeah. watching that movie for the first time. Yeah. I was in Al Nasser Cinema, which was back then we didn't have Vox and Real and all of these sorts of things. I think it was like Al Nasser and Strand Cinemas were your options. And uh, I remember that being the movie that bumped the ticket prices up because they were at 15 dirhams. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I think they were bumped up to something like 25. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. yeah. 25 dirhams. Well, obviously, we know nowadays movies don't tend to be in the theatres for, for all that long. And uh, for back then, it, that wasn't necessarily the case. Titanic actually came out in December of 1997, and it was still in theatres when it came out on VHS wow. nearly a year later, in September of 1998. And I think it's the first and maybe only the only film to accomplish that feat, to still be in theatres when it's out on VHS. Yeah, so now, obviously, like it's different now. Later because Cheapers. of the, the formatting but um it was the highest grossing film of all time and it was ultimately dethroned by another one of james cameron's films in 2009 yeah, avatar when james cameron goes big he really does go big in fairness what a movie titanic was can't quite believe 1924 years wow. ago that is amazing elsewhere uh, robin williams and matt damon were on fine form in this classic film you're an orphan right do you think i know the first thing about how hard your life has been how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist. Unless you want to talk about you, who you are, then I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you, sport? Incredible movie. One of my favourites of Good all time. Will Hunting mm. is an incredible movie. The late, great Robin Williams, mm. a more serious role for him, and he played it to a, to a plum. And Ben Affleck and Matt Damon um, co-wrote it, didn't they? They did, and originally it was not going to be involving a psychiatrist. It was actually about a math genius and his friend who were outsmarting the government, <laughs> and they basically took the screenplay. They were told that, um, that Rob Reiner was the, the head honcho. He, um, they were told that essentially they had two stories. They had one story about a reluctant whiz kid trying not to be recruited by the CIA. And then they had the sort of more character-based drama about a genius and his shrink. And they were told, you've got to choose which story you want to go down. And ultimately, they ended up choosing the one mm. with Robin they Williams playing the psychiatrist. Wisely, I think. Very much so. Uh, this film is, is a really good movie. It's a crime thriller. It stars Guy Pearce, Kevin Spacey and Russell Crowe as three L.A. cops with very different methods. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You truly prepared to be despised within an apartment? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it going to look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. That is early confidential. It's a sort of film noir classic. Mm. And the cast, you'd struggle to think of a better cast. Oh. Honestly, it was absolutely brilliant. Moving swiftly on to another crime classic, Al Pacino was back for a memorable role alongside a young Johnny Depp in gangster movie Donnie Brasco, based on the real-life agent Joseph Pistone. You're right. I'm always right. Why is this guy's always right? Even when he's wrong, he's right. All the way up the line. Connected guy, 
the wise guy to skip with a boss. Yeah, I know. I know that. You know? Yeah. What do you know? It's like, uh, it's kind of like the army, like a chain of commands. The army? <laughs> Ain't nothing like the army. The army is some guy you don't know, sends you out to whack some other guy you don't know. Army. You want to check in with me tomorrow? Yeah. All right. That was Donny Brasco, played by Johnny Depp, breaching or forming this relationship with Lefty, played yeah. by Al Pacino. And uh, it was actually based around the true story of Joseph Pistone. This guy went so deep undercover. He was there. He was supposed to be in there for six weeks. He was undercover for six months. They had to pull him out because he was that deeply yeah. undercover as Donnie Brasco. And, um, yeah, it was just it's an amazing film. It's brilliant, Donny Brasco. It, it really is. And you have so much sympathy for Lefty, not to spoil it in the movie, but if you haven't, it is actually, we talk a lot on the show about Goodfellas and Casino and The Godfather. You know, I mean, they are massive scores, legendary. Donny Brasco, I actually watched it quite recently for like the umpteenth time during lockdown. It is a remarkable film. Yeah. Johnny and obviously Al Pacino, phenomenal actors. Here's one I watched recently. Maybe one of the most <laughs> ludicrous plots to ever grace the silver screen, starring John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. For years, I've, I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every, every mannerism, facial tick, gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. Uh, oh, Nicholas Cage was offered the role of Caster Troy, and he actually initially turned down the role because he said he did not like the thought of playing the villain in the film. Nicholas Cage enjoyed playing the sort of rugged hero type that you see in like Con Air. John Cameron Paul. I can't believe he he had that many like an actors. You're acting. You'd have to play the guy you want to play. I just don't get this. I feel like Use he's, your acting talents. He was and I better put as, as a quotes. villain anyways, right? He was great. Yeah. He actually changed his mind when he learned he'd actually be playing the hero for most of the film because they swap bodies, which is one of the key <laughs> plot twists. And the other thing I learned about this was originally Face Off was supposed to start Sylvester Stallone and Arnie. Oh, no. Can you imagine how different it would have been then? Oh, no. That would have been insane. But the director suggested that Travolta and Cage would be much better it suited is ludicrous, for the roles. But you cannot knock face off. It is yeah. it's great. Entertaining. Yeah. Um, we've got to play this clip because this was also the year that Mike Myers played almost every single character <laughs> in a hugely popular spoof comedy hit. As you know, the royal family of Britain are the wealthiest landowners in the world. Either the royal family pays us an exorbitant amount of money, or we make it seem that Prince Charles has had an affair outside of marriage and therefore would have to divorce. <clears throat> Prince Charles did have an affair. He admitted it, and they are now divorced. Right, okay, people, you have to tell me these things, all right? I've been frozen for 30 years, okay? <laughs> Oh my lord! <laughs> I just love Austin Powers. I could watch the, all the whole series of Austin Powers in a row. I'm yes, a big fan. In one sitting. I'm a big fan. Mike Myers would actually initially wanted to offer Jim Carrey the role oh. of Doctor Evil, but Carrey was busy filming another movie called Liar Liar. So Mike Myers' solution was to play Doctor Evil himself. Yeah, he does agree, and job. it kind of worked out, didn't it? It did. He also played the Big Scotsman, didn't he? He did. Uh, I can't remember his name. Oh, yeah, it was. Fat something the bee. Yeah, that's the one. Last one in the film section. We've got another successful comedy, another duo. Will Smith teamed up with Tommy Lee Jones. 
We're no longer part of the system. We are the men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Unlimited technology from the whole universe, and we cruise around in a Ford POS. Fasten your seatbelt. See, now we got to work on your people skills. Controversially, not a fan of Men in Black. No, I didn't enjoy, I didn't particularly enjoy it either. But the whole franchise has made $1.6 billion. Okay, what do I know? And um, it was the second highest grossing film of 97 behind Titanic. Wow. Just a quick one in TV, Chris. The launch of both South Park and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. One of your favourites, Buffy. One I of know my favourites, yeah. I think it's just I think it's such a criminally underrated show. At least by you guys. There are a lot of big fans well, of it out I there. was a big fan. My friends and I used to record it on VHS and then pass it around. Oh look at you. Like it was contraband. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Joss Whedon said that the guy that created and wrote Buffy, he said that he wanted to come up with the idea of a seemingly insignificant female character who turns out to be extraordinary. He came up with the name Buffy because he said it was the name he could think of that would be taken the least seriously. There is no way, he said, you could hear the name Buffy and think this is an important person. Interesting. Hmm. And she turned out to be the vampire mm. slayer. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to music. And let's start, as we have been doing these last couple of weeks, with dance music oh, and nice. this very anti-materialistic anthem oh. that swept through Clubland in the late 90s. Right up there, this. My lover's got no money, he's got his strong beliefs. My lover's got no power, he's got his strong beliefs. My lover's got no fame, he's got his strong beliefs. My lover's got no money, he's got his strong beliefs. One more and more, people just want more. That's even the eyeball. What a tune this is. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a pioneering song. We talked about the Eurovision Song Contest. It's a pioneering song of the Euro dance genre, and it was sung by Brooklyn based Italian singer and songwriter Gala. Oh, here we go. Listen to this. Thursday, oh, it really is. What that, is. Uh, what that is would win saying? any Eurovision Song Contest. What um, is she saying there? The, the perception was that she was singing He's Got His Trombolese, <laughs> which people thought was an instrument. It's actually He's Got His Strong Beliefs. Correct. <laughs> so, but is it Purifier? It, 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 was, it was basically a real anti... It was a, it was a real kind of anti-consumerism, anti-commercialism mm. anthem. Kind of, now, music publication Fact placed the following track at number 21 in 21 <laughs> diva house belters that still sound great in 2018, apparently. Now, the Sunday Mirror said of this song... <laughs> And it's by Todd Terry, if you, in case you were wondering. Todd and the boys keep on jumping with a fat disco number, the like of which hasn't been seen since the last one they did. Brilliant writing that. The song peaked inside the top five in Italy and in the UK. I do enjoy it. I must say, I, I'm a big fan of that too. I tell you, if, only, if I became music manager of Dubai at 103.8, I would take the station in a whole yeah. different direction. Now, if you were in Ibiza in 1997, you definitely heard this. And it's a bit rascal. I've popped it in anyway. I'm loving it, Romeo. 
Now, Swedish-based musician and producer Dr. Olben produced this club hit, which for some reason was wildly popular in Spain and very few other places. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's not true. It was a top ten hit in Sweden, Finland, Austria and Germany. I can see it. Before you said it was Swedish produced, it gave me Ace of Bass vibes. Oh, yes. A little bit. Like Ace of Bass with a little bit more of like synth behind it. I love yeah. it. I can see where you're coming from. Now, there. I think we're actually going to hear a bit of White Town later on, aren't we, we Chris? Are so we're going to skip that one. We're going to move on to the world of hip-hop. Now, hip-hop was in mourning in 1997 because Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G., was murdered in a drive-by shooting in March of that year, less than seven months after the killing of West Coast rapper Tupac Shakur. The assailants in both murders remain a mystery to this day, which is extraordinary. And a little bit later on, in May, a couple of months after his death, Biggie's uh, best friend Puff Daddy, now known as Diddy, released this tribute as part of his No Way Out album. In the future, can't wait to see if you open up the gates for me. Reminisce sometime, the night they took my friend. Try to black it out, but it plays again. When it's real, feeling's hard to conceal. Can't imagine all the pain I feel. Give anything to hear half your breath. I know you're still living your life after death. So Diddy sampled every breath you take by the police and he didn't actually really sort any of the legal issues out until after the song was released because it came out two months after B.I.G.'s death. Mm. Sting, who wrote the song, was granted a writer's credit and he received royalties and he actually really appreciated the sentiment. He uh, actually performed the song Did with he? Diddy and his crew at the MTV Video Music Awards. He sang the chorus mm. and actually enjoyed the fact that Puff Daddy, who was a big fan of the song, took inspiration and used it as a sample. Now, this is easily my favourite song from Correct. 1997. I Released posthumously in July, the Notorious B.I.G. appears alongside Puff Daddy and Mace. It's an absolute classic. I love this tune as well. Throw your rollies in the sky, waving side to side, and keep your hands high, while I keep your girl eye. Play it please, lyrically, see, B.I.G. be flossing, jig on the cover of Fortune, 500, it's my phone number, your man, I got the know, I got the dough, now I've got to give a shout out to uh, an old friend of mine who I got the bus to school with, <laughs> Richard Clark. It was his favourite song. <laughs> He had it playing on his Walkman every single day, seemingly. It's a great tune. And he actually made me a CD of all Puff Daddy's greatest <laughs> hits. Rich, what's he up to these days, Rob? Do you know? Uh, he works in insurance in Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, anyway, right. Will Smith, we've already mentioned him. He could do no wrong this year. I mean, he was starring in blockbuster movies. He was knocking songs out of the park. He was just unbelievable. He'd already been in Bad Boys. He'd been in Independence Day. He'd penned Men in Black, the hit track to go along with the film. And then he won the Grammy for Best Rap Solo Performance for this song. Everybody looking at me, glancing a kid. Wishing it was dancing a jig here with this handsome kid. Sick a cigar right from Cuba, Cuba. I just bite it for the look. I don't light it. They'll wait to hand me on the hand. Stay all play. Give it up, jiggy. Make it feel like foreplay. Yo, my cardio is infinite. Ha <laughs> Big Willie Styles all in it. Getting jiggy with it. And I tell you what, that, more than any other song that I can think of, was a dance floor classic when I was 16. A dance An floor? An absolute... <laughs> this was my first sort of venturings out to various 
You know, I, I tell you what, Rob, I would pay all the money in my bank to see you dancing to getting jiggy <laughs> with it. <laughs> Believe it or not, yeah, that's kind of what I used to do at 16 years of age. <laughs> oh, that explains an awful lot. Robbie's go-to dance that, song. Honestly, that, that song is really emblazoned in my memory for some reason. It is a great yeah. song as well. The fact that that won a Grammy, too, for Best Rap Solo Performance. Yeah. I mean, how much rap has changed in just 20 years? And like, Big Will well, in Dubai, although, of course. Yeah, you know exactly. What? I, I feel like rap was way more authentic in the early 90s. Mm. And and it became a bit more. Oh, come on, you look at me like that, but come on, it was way more. I mean, the early nineties for me was the absolute heyday of rap. Correct well, me if I'm wrong. We've also had some incredible lines that appeared in Rhythm Is a Dancer. No, that, you're, talking about, you're talking about dance songs, Chris. Yeah, I know. I I'm talking about you know Ice Cube and Dr. Dre and all the early yeah. hits with Snoop Dogg and like that was. You know, the early nineties was brilliant for Eminem, old school rap. Eminem came along. Eminem came along. Now. Um, Okay, let's uh, let's talk about more sort of pop music, and it was a triumphant return for everyone's favourite group, Chris. Oh, I love this. Pretty sure Jensi, who is our take off, is just doing the dance to this song. Yeah. There was a dance to go along there with was. this, right? Where they trying to do a whole thriller thing. Yeah, exactly. It was like it was a zombie a dance, wasn't it? Was it was their impersonation of Michael Jackson's thriller. Sadly it was written by it. Swedish hitmakers Max Martin and Dennis Pop. <laughs> right. Where did you prove Probably not their real names. From Robert. <laughs> <laughs> they wrote a lot of songs. <laughs> it won the best group video at the following year's MTV Music Awards, and by 2001, that song had sold a whopping 14 million copies in the US alone. Yeah, Brian, he was the hero of that band. Now, before Justin Bieber, there was this group. Now, I think you're going to love this, because this song is apparently way deeper than any of us will be expecting, and that's according to the drummer Zach Hansen. Hanson's Umbop being the song in question here. He said, you've got to hold on to the things that really matter. Umbop <laughs> represents a frame of time or the futility of life, he said. <laughs> things are going to be gone, whether it's your age or your youth or maybe the money you have. All of that's going to be left the people you've nurtured and have built to be your backbone and your support system. What? What a quote. Was he 14 when he said that as he was? Wasn't he 14 or something when yeah, this I'm song came I'm pretty sure out? that quote was scripted by one of his songwriters. <laughs> I mean, it represents a frame of time or the futility of life, and it's this. Yeah, the agents had one there. He's absolutely had a torrid there. Yeah. Yeah, they're talking about getting old and losing your, your hair. I mean, still. Now, listen, sp speaking of songs, and this is the last clip, songs with a deep meaning to them and a, and a far greater than we ever could have given them credit for. This one became a football anthem. It became an ode to all things merriment. thing about that Bobby <laughs> I just think of a group of men jumping into each other in a nightclub that's what yeah, would happen you'd be 19 it. just jumping into one another it had incredible long longevity though by Chumba Wumba Chumba thumping. Wumba oh my goodness so that's the music for 97 it's fair to say I it, loved it it's good but it was getting a little bit for want of a better word puerile and Ooh. silly do you not think no. I, th I think the early 90s were better. That's just my own personal opinion. I think it was getting a bit more, a bit too poppy. 
by the mid to late 90s. I'll give you that. I I enjoyed the musical selections of sort of last week even, from 1996 Mm. more than this week's. Oh, freed from desire. I wish I could play it all now. But of course, all things sport. Yeah, and listen, there's only one place to start when it comes to sport. It was, for me, one of the most memorable sporting moments of my life, watching sport all the times and all the years that I have. Tigers win at the Masters that year at the the age of 21 by 12 strokes, just destroying the field, starting poorly. I think he shot 40 on his front nine. He playing in the company of the defending champion, Nick Faldo. And from there on in, it was a procession. Let's take a listen. There it is. A win for the ages. Tiger Woods. In a moment like no one has ever seen at the Masters. Shattering record after record after record. The green jacket will be on his shoulders in just a moment. 21. And it was just, it was the culmination, obviously, of a remarkable career as an amateur. He was a child prodigy. I think the fact that Earl Woods had sort of almost engineered him from a young age, his father, to to be a golfing champion. And and this was the sort of, it was bearing fruit in spectacular fashion. And to destroy a field in the manner that he did, I mean, it was so commanding it was so precocious and it would start just such a remarkable career i mean it doesn't really need me to reiterate that the man won everything we've talked about him there is no man on this planet that wears a cap better than tiger other than robbie wearing a bucket hat of course i think he's the only man that can contend with him but when you look back on that how young and fresh-faced he is at 21 he's a kid yeah, he was in that baggy red, baggy red Nike red. sweater. Yeah. That was the sort of debut of the kind of red and black combo that, that has become iconic in the world of sport. And I think it was one of those things where, you know, you know someone is going to be an iconic sportsman before they've even really done anything. And mm. it was just so clear. He had such star power. The aura around him was so great, even at the age of 21, even as he won his first major championship, you just knew that this was someone who was going to change his sport. And it was one of those things where usually you have to wait for the fullness of time to play out and for things to happen before that sort of sinks in. But with Tiger, it was he was just burning so unbelievably precociously at such mm. a young age. And uh, yeah, he didn't win another major until 1999, of course, the PGA Championship. But then he went on that extraordinary run where he, ran, he won four in a row and uh, yeah, we're going to hear much more about his accomplishments over the coming years in the, in this particular feature, in this particular podcast. But um, yeah, Tiger announcing himself on the stage in the way that he did, Unreal. of course, signed to, to Nike in a $40 million deal. And um, yeah, he would go on to, to shatter all sorts of golfing records. And there was another athlete um, who was sinking to a, a sporting the deer. He'd had many low points in his life, of course, but Mike Tyson in the ring fighting Evander Holyfield for the second time on June the 28th, 1997, having lost to him. It was a WBA heavyweight title fight. Mills Lane was officiating, and this was what happened. What happened here? He got bit, I think. Evander Holyfield, look out, he's pushed right here, above us by Tyson. He got bit in the ear. My goodness, he's got a bloody right ear. Holyfield bit by a dirty Mike Tyson. I can't believe what I'm seeing. Well, first he had a parachute drop on him. Now he had a heavyweight bite him. It is remarkable. It's like I a WWE it. match. It was, and even the commentary would, would tell you it's like WWE, but I wonder if you might be heading home for dinner, so uh, apologies <laughs> for what I'm about to say here. I watched it back again. 
he's not just biting the ear. He takes a chunk yeah. out of Holyfield's ear. That chunk of ear lands on the canvas of the boxing ring. They met on Oprah's show a few oh. years later, quite some time later, actually, and they kind of reconciled and, and uh, you know, buried the hatchet kind of very publicly. Um, and Evander Holyfield said that, you know, completely forgiven. I'd find it hard to forgive someone who bit a chunk out of mine, yeah. I've got to admit. But um, the thing about it is, is that Mike Tyson has completely restored his kind of standing, his, his public image now. Mm. Mike Tyson is, is revered and thoroughly respected now. By many. There are still some that, let's be honest, like anything in this world, still loathe him. But yeah, I know, but come on. And to be yeah. fair, someone like Lance Armstrong, with his, the success of his podcast, he's rebuilding his yeah. image as well. A lot of people forgive. So I think, um, yeah, time is a great healer in that regard. But yeah, it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to fathom how uh, in a boxing match, he... Uh, Talk about animalistic. He yeah. bit a chunk out of another man's ear. <laughs> Just you putting it in your lovely dulcet tones. I'm there, not sure Robbie. I've got the chomping force to take a bite out. I'm not sure I could... Uh, it's so true. You would, Honestly. You would think it's you'd like have a great to... white shark. Yeah, you'd think you'd have to wrestle it about uh, a bit. Oh, I just, yeah, I so mean, frustrated. I don't, think, cut right I don't think his oral hygiene was great. I've got to be honest. I, I seem to recall he had a couple of gold teeth by that stage. He, yeah. And that might, <laughs> have, that might have helped. Yeah, yeah certainly. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, imagine that. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not nice. I apologise profusely for bringing uh, it anyway, up Anyway, well. right. It was also the year where one of the most famous free kicks was ever scored in, in one of the most... A tournament that still gets weirdly a lot of press even today, and it was a complete non-event. It was. A it was called Le Tournoi. Yeah. It was held between June the third and the eleventh, and it featured England, Brazil, and France. It's a thirty-yard free kick with a twenty-yard run-up. Dear, dear! I don't believe it. What a goal we have just seen from Roberto Carlos. That is amazing. That's way, way, way wider than the goal. That's two, three yards wide. And just clips the inside of the post. That is quite a magnificent free kick. Say what you want about Andy Gray. And listen, a lot of you, I'm sure, that listen to this, that watch Being Sports will have your views over him. I, for one, will stand up for him in one reason and one reason only. He is still the best co-coms, certainly in my lifetime. As a co-commentator, Andy Gray has What no, a hat. What a hit. So take a boo, son. Take a boo. And that, on that occasion... <laughs> Uh, that goal, Roberto Carlos, the free kick, the infamous free kick. I watched it again with producer Scotty today. And what gets me, and Scott only noticed, I think, the first time today, is the ball boy who is sitting behind the billboard. He must be maybe six yards, seven, eight yards from the post. He actually ducks. He, he thinks Roberto Carlos's free kick is about to hit him. And, of course, it swerves. Now, modern technology, modern, modern footballs, they don't swerve as much as the old ones, do they? I actually don't know the answer to that, Rob. I think if you, you cut it in the way that Roberto Carlos did with his left foot, I think if anyone can, Bobby Carlos can, because that is astonishing. The run-up is fully 20 yards, and he cuts across the ball. Fabian Barthez in goals, beating all lines up. An incredible finish. Just finally, big year for Michael Jordan. Second successive NBA championship with his all-conquering Chicago Bulls side. A 4-2 series win over the Utah Jazz. And all in all, a pretty solid sporting yeah. year. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. Thank you for listening to the Time Capsule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do, if you've got a moment, give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.